can Unilever live up to its pledge to ensure a living wage, workers' rights, and environmental sustainability across its global supply chain? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. With revenue of nearly $60 billion, Unilever is among the world's largest consumer goods companies. Brands include Lipton, Best Foods, Breyers, Ben & Jerry's, Dove Soap, 7th Generation, Noxima, and Lux, to name but a few. Direct employees number around 155,000, although many more around the globe have jobs that are tied to the company. So it's big news when Unilever pledges to ensure a living wage for all of its supply chain workers globally by the year 2030. On top of that, the company is voicing support for workers' rights and the use of sustainable materials. On this episode, we get the details from Chief Procurement Officer Dave Ingram. We'll talk about how the company can follow through on its promise, which starts with figuring out just what is a living wage in the countries in which Unilever workers are employed, then requires a high degree of visibility to ensure that they're being treated fairly. Finally, we ask the question, do consumers care? Here's my conversation with Dave Ingram. Dave Ingram, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. Very pleased to be here. Now, Unilever has pledged to ensure the living wage of all supply chain workers worldwide by the year 2030. That is my understanding. What was the genesis of this effort? What caused you to do it, and how did it all start? Yeah, because the company were very clear that the issues of, of the moment today are climate change and social inequality. And when you look at the world around us, the year started pre-COVID with something like 650 million people globally living in poverty. And that's a number that had been coming down over the preceding sort of 10 to 15 years. But it's still a very high number. And in the last 12 to 14 months during COVID, that number has actually increased a further 37 million. So the inequality uh, between the rich and the poor is growing and we feel that we need to make an intervention. As a company, we need to stimulate interventions by businesses to make a difference um, around inequality. Can you estimate the total number of individuals that contribute to the Unilever supply chain around the world who would be affected by this initiative? Yeah, it's actually very hard to get a definitive number. We know that the impact is in the millions. And of course, when you think about the direct impact of a, someone in agriculture whose, whose wage may be predominantly connected to Unilever, the dependents that rely upon that wage would be three or four times that number. So we're certainly talking in millions in terms of impact um, that we're trying to make. And that's just in the Unilever ecosystem, of course. We want to advocate for change across industry and advocate for change across countries, which would clearly impact uh, many, many more people. How will you go about calculating what constitutes a living wage? And the cost of living varies quite a bit from country to country. Will you have figures for individual countries, and how will you come up with those? So we won't do that ourselves. We are um, working with a number of external agencies who have been working on living wage definitions for a number of years. And we, we expect this to evolve, actually, 
Bob, as we go forward. We've even seen in the last 18 months a further clarity in definition. I just let me give you an example in India. It's moved from a national living wage down to a sub-regional to a city versus um, rural living wages. Hmm. We'll see that clarity and, and more detailed definition evolve, and we'll see one or two of these sort of institutions, these external agencies, becoming the main reference point for a living wage. So we're working with a couple at the moment to give us a sense um, of where that gap is. Will you go beyond the actual issue of wages to cover issues of worker, fair treatment of workers in factories and on farms and the like? Yeah, I should have explained that within Unilever, we have a responsible sourcing policy that all of our partners sign into. And the bedrock of our responsible sourcing policy is our human rights approach. So that doesn't change. Um, That bedrock of human rights, um, control, forced labour, child labour is absolutely been in that responsible sourcing policy and will continue through. So living wage sort of sits above that core of human rights and is really about making a difference for people to be able to go beyond their normal, um, just be able to put food on the table into being able to predict for schooling, um, for medical, uh, for clothing, and also for, to put some money away for a rainy day for people where the minimum wages obviously don't allow for that. Considering the size and scope of Unilever and its supply chain, though, it, it seems like it will be a tremendous challenge to monitor worker treatment around the world, especially with a multi-tier supply chain. We get past the first tier into the second, third, and fourth, and all the way to the farm. I mean, up to now, have you managed to do that? And going forward, how do you think you can keep control and monitoring throughout your global supply chain? Yeah, there's two elements I'd say that we do now. The responsible sourcing policy I mentioned is signed into by all of our partners, our immediate partners, and we will do thousands of audits for those partners to ensure that they comply and to help them comply with that policy. In addition, particularly in agriculture, we have very open grievance procedures where anyone who feels that there is any form of misdemeanor, whether it's a, a, a social issue or whether it's an environmental issue with respect to deforestation, we have got an open, uh, publicly available grievance procedure, which we react to very strongly and, and have a very clear process of assessment and resolution of those issues. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, as we start unpeeling Bob, the chain, we go beyond tier one, as you said, into two, three, and four, we know there are issues out there. And we see them around the world. And until we find them, we can't do anything about them. What about the issue of the environment and climate? Is this all part of one program? I mean, you must be interested in measuring your carbon footprint around the world. Is that part of this effort or is that a separate thing? Yeah, let me try and chunk up our overall commitment into a number of areas. So we, we launched as Unilever at the end of 19, actually, a commitment to plastics. Uh, which was the three areas, reducing our plastics, a commitment to uh, recyclability and uh, use of recycled plastics and the commitment to the collection and processing of uh, plastics. We committed to collecting and processing as much as we use in Unilever. So we launched those at the end of 2019. In the middle of 2020, we launched our climate and nature goals around zero deforestation in nature around regeneration of nature. So not just about stopping the bad happening, 
but contributing and driving good in nature and in farming. We also launched a commitment around zero carbon by 2039. Um, we have committed to getting carbon on our packs so consumers can understand their carbon footprint by seeing what the, the carbon effect of each pack and each product that we sell. And significantly, as part of that middle of last year, we announced the creation of a climate and nature fund. So billion euro fund to support activities in climate and nature. And that's really recognizing that science and technology is not there yet to solve problems as quickly as we want to solve them. And therefore, we'll need to invest behind companies who are nascent and working in these areas to support. So our social commitments that we've launched in, in the last uh, month really sit as the, the third contribution to our multi-year priorities, which cover raising living standards, of which living wage is really fundamental. It's about increasing equality um, and inclusion and diversity. And one significant part of that is a commitment to spending €2 billion Euros annually with suppliers owned and managed by people from underrepresented groups. And we're going to do that by 2025. Mm -hmm. And the last element of the social commitment is about preparing people for the future of work, recognizing that employment of the future is going to be different to today. And therefore, for our own employees within Unilever, a commitment to making them future fit, giving them the skills and reskilling them for jobs that we know we're going to have for the future and they're going to be available in the world for the future. There's also a commitment to 10 million youth recognising that they're going to need to be helped, particularly post this COVID experience, helped in their journey of employment. Uh, it's a commitment around their future of work and making sure they have the essential skills to make sure that they're the best place for job opportunities over the next 10 years. In working out the details of this very broad initiative, were you able to draw on any existing programs, either developed by other corporations or NGOs or governments or anyone? Or are you just making them, making all this up as you go, determining what shape it's going to take? No, this is a combination of partnerships. I should have expressed that we are very clear that this will only be delivered through partnerships and wide-ranging partnerships partnerships with peer companies, partnerships in science, partnerships with governments, partnerships with NGOs. Uh, it's creating ecosystems across all of these objectives I mentioned, whether it's plastics, climate, nature or social. They're going to be the only way, actually, that we deliver our goals and the only way that we can get further leverage. We do build upon 10 years of working on what we've called our universe Sustainable Living Plan, which was a wide-ranging plan equally 10 years ago. Um, I was in the company at that point, Bob, and I can tell you inside the company when we heard of that 10 years ago, some of us didn't even know what, what the metrics we were talking about. And if we did know about them, we thought there's no chance we're going to get that. Mm. And we're thrilled to be achieving goals that we never thought we were going to achieve over those 10 years. So we've learned that putting stretch into the ambition actually gives energy in the business, forces us to look outside and find partnerships one big learning of the last 10 years. The second learning, I think, is we can't change what we can't see. We've got to get to the point and the source of our value chain, the original source. We've got to understand the farmer, the field, understand what's happening from a climate, nature, social perspective before we can actually influence that. So a large part of our journey 
going forward in this next five and ten years is about radical transparency of the supply chain. What brings you radical transparency? Can technology be of assistance? We hear about many different monitoring and tracking options, such as blockchain and the like. Is there a possibility that those could help? Yeah, absolutely. Look, firstly, I think it's a commitment from the company to want transparency. So it's a desire to actually want to know where the, the, the field, the farmer is, and include them in our ecosystem. And then to your point, technology is making a massive difference right now. Whether it's about chain of custody, it's about tracking of fields and farmers, it's about blockchain of uh, systems so that we know that commerce is moving and is getting to the right source. There's a sweep of technologies. We've been very proud in a couple of our partnerships, just just to mention two of them that we announced last year with Orbital Insight and with Google Earth Engine. Uh, I happened just yet last night actually to go through with a team, just an update of where we are with those. And it's remarkable to see the visibility you can now see of fields, um, farming communities, social interaction, uh, deforestation, biodiversity uh, mapping. So you can understand very, very quickly what's happening in the chain through these layers of technologies, and we're, we're very pleased to be working with Google to bring those all together in one package so that we can dynamically look at what's happening in our extended chain. It is such a multifaceted initiative. What aspect of it do you think is most difficult to achieve? I think that's a great question. There is really scary challenges across the board. The plastic challenge, the waste challenge, the climate challenge of really doing climate change responsibly, where it's not just about offsetting at the end of the day. It's actually about reduction and investment in technologies and, and changes of portfolios. Nature, regeneration of nature is something that we all talk about, um, but science uh, needs to help us define. And we're quite a long way from, we, we know the direction is right. There's, there's superb examples around the world that moving into regenerative practices is the right thing to do. But the science isn't quite there yet to tell us exactly the impact of that. And on social, as you were saying, the reach of trying to get access to these millions of people, of then understanding income or wage systems is incredibly complex. So I struggle a bit to say what is the single defining challenge, because it may simplify it, it too much to define one. I think it's range across board. Maybe the common theme is one of traceability and transparency. We, we won't be able to change these things until we know what's happening on the actual ground that we're working with, whether mm-hmm. it's plastics, climate, nature, or people. So maybe that's the underlying defining biggest challenge of, are we seeing and touching what's actually at the very, to your point, from the tier three, tier four, the, the starting point of this value chain? because we know that it's only then that we'll make the difference we need to make. Stretch goals, to be sure, in a very short time in which to achieve these goals, but is there a degree to which you're phasing in this initiative, or is it just overnight, suddenly, you know, the living wage is a reality? It will take time. It will take time to do two things. One, get that visibility I'm talking about. So we have very clear visibility of our Tier 1 suppliers. We've got some visibility of Tier 2. In some cases, like within our key crops, we've got visibility right down to three and four, but we don't have that widespread across our business. And, and a large part of the time will take 
the technology will help us get that visibility. We also importantly need to make this systemic and sustainable. So if we just made a switch tomorrow to changing a living wage or to pushing to our suppliers a change of a living wage, we would clearly get some unintended consequences potentially of doing that as a switch from one day to the next without it being sustainable or systemic. And that, that unintended consequence may be job losses, which is what we absolutely don't want. So we do want to make it a, a systemic change. We want to do that with partnerships. And we want to do it in partnership with our own partners and suppliers so that we take them on the journey with us and we, we feel that's really important. We also want to take peer companies, um, governments, uh, industries along with us because that's really where you make a larger impact. To what extent do you believe at this point that the consumer of your products cares about what you're doing? When they go to the shelf to buy a product, how can you communicate this to them and how much do they care about your commitment to these issues? So that's a great point and really the start of the equation, isn't it? We are now clear that the consumer has a preference um, for purpose-driven brands and products. When we look at our own portfolio, um, our brands and products which are directly linked to a clear purpose um, are growing 60 to 70% faster than our other products. In fact, 75% of Unilever's growth is from brands which have got clear purpose-driven products uh, within them. So we're clear that the consumer uh, wants that. As Unilever, many of us will do store visits with shoppers to understand how shoppers are experiencing the world today. I did it pre-COVID, obviously, in the UK with a lady in Gloucester in, in the, the southwest of England. And I was shocked, to be honest, how much in her natural shopping journey she's looking at plastic on her products. And mm. She's making a decision on coffee, on whether there's plastic sleeving around the glass jar, because she thinks, well, that's a waste. And I, and I was really shocked at how frequent 80% of our purchasing was based on, well, I think this company does good, or I see too much plastic on the packaging. So we know that consumers really do care. Well, it's been said by others that your living wage pledge is ahead of the competitive CSR curve, that is corporate social responsibility curve. But it's great to hear that you are leading the way on these crucial issues. Dave Ingram of Unilever, I want to thank you so much for explaining to me today this program that you will be putting into place over the coming years. Thank you very much for being with me. Thank you, Bob. That was my conversation with Dave Ingram of Unilever, talking about the company's pledge to ensure a living wage throughout its global supply chain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.